here at the university for all faculty who have some interest in integrating technology into their classroom to advance some particular curricular or pedagogical goal. Uh, this can mean very basic services such as uh, helping uh, uh, upload and construct an online syllabus to more complicated online projects, uh, dynamic interactive environments. For this presentation, Mark and I are going to be talking about one of our larger projects that we just uh, worked on recently, the Havel at Columbia website. Uh, this past fall semester, Václav Havel arrived at Columbia University for an eight-week residency featuring lectures, interviews, conversations, classes, performances, and panels centered around his life and ideas. As part of this residency, the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning partnered with the University Arts Initiative, who was uh, producing this event, to build the Havel at Columbia website an online resource designed to engage students, instructors, as well as the general public with Havel's visit to Columbia. Several aspects of this project marked it as unusual for what we do at the center in that we support a primarily uh, campus faculty uh, uh, use. Uh, the problems include the engagement of a wide range of disciplines, uh, the fact this was an events-driven content as opposed to classroom-driven, uh, its openness to the general public. These features had to be addressed on top of the primary agenda of any CC and MTL project, which is the purposeful engagement of new media and teaching uh, and learning in classes in Columbia. So I think oh, it, when we talk about what we'll be showing you here, this open content, the open video, it's, I think we're very much in agreement with what Rick was just talking about with the idea of openness. Not necessarily just content that is accessible, but content that is usable. And as we give you a tour through this site, we'll be emphasizing that usability as, as much as we can in the amount of time that we have. We, we're going to take you through a brief tour of the site with a particular emphasis on the open video to demonstrate how we collected, produced, and made video available as learning materials here at Columbia as well as uh, the, uh, a resource for the general public. The first kind of video I want to show you are just the interviews we conducted here. Uh, President Havel proved to have many prominent friends who were interested in participating in this project, uh, including uh, people like Lou Reed, Eldred Alby, Milos Forman, George We got H. to ask Bush. each other one question. I turned down a little bit. David Remnick, George Soros. So that made it very interesting, just a little bit more. Here you see one interview running behind uh, in the background. In addition, we interviewed faculty here at the university to take advantage of their expertise on and around Havel. Let me switch to just one other example of the interviews we captured. And if you notice here, this is our, our video display window where you have the video playing. This is flash video, as well as the interview we conducted segmented and chapterized, which a user could navigate through. Let me open another one. To capture, process, and present these interviews, we used our video team, uh, which you see everywhere in this room, uh, Brian, Stephanie, uh, Gerard. Uh, they were very integral in terms of capturing this content and uh, making it available. Uh, I'd like to uh, point out as you're watching this interview that uh, in order to, to guide uh, visitors to the site to the, to the range of materials, because on top of uh, videos we had uh, online materials such as digitized uh, photographs, documents, playbills, posters, etc. These materials are activated when you're watching these interviews. So when, in, for example, when George Soros is talking and he mentions certain things, items, links appear in the related links window. So he's talking about Charter 77. I can click here and then a gallery of Charter 77 will eventually open. The interview is still playing. I can scroll through and see the range of content we got, which was donated, we took from the libraries here at the university, 
all of which further illustrates uh, the interview that you're uh, engaging with. Now let me go to another interview. On top, excuse me, in addition to the interviews that we captured, we also captured many of the events here. Uh, for instance, the conversation between Havel, Lee Bollinger, our president, and Bill Clinton. So again, you find similarities, and this was important to have consistency in terms of the video window, how it looked. It'd be chapterized, you can navigate it. And again, this is something you could watch, which is available for anyone who is coming to visit the site. And on top of that, we captured all sorts of different events that were going on, panels, discussions, uh, plays that were performed by the students here at the universities of a number of different Havel's plays, readings that were done by actors who were available in New York City. All these things were available for people to watch, view, and engage with. In addition to the video that we captured that we controlled so we can make freely available, we worked hard to solicit material uh, that didn't belong to us uh, and incorporate it and make it freely available. For instance, we worked with writer-director Jan Novak, who agreed to let us show a representative sample of his documentary on Václav Havel in the site. In addition to that, we negotiated with CNN to let uh, us use their raw footage that they took from the Velvet Revolution. When I say the raw footage, CNN, when we first contacted them and let them know about this project, uh, they weren't willing to give us the produced pieces that were done when Bernard Shaw was on the air and talking about it, but they were more than happy to give us all the raw footage uh, that they took. And they asked us, were you, would you be interested in that? And we said we were very interested in that. And this allowed us to take uh, this hours of footage and produce it into the context of our site and uh, make it openly available. So we're very excited about that. We thought that was a really, uh, uh, interesting partnership with an organization where you might think on the, the first level might not be interested in making their content immediately openly available, uh, a place like CNN. So I'm going to show one more clip and then Mark's going to continue in, in terms of talking about how we made this content uh, available and also how we made this content uh, more usable. This is just one example of the CNN footage. This is uh, in 1989, the announcement during a press conference when they found out, Havel and also his colleagues, that the communists were finally, after many uh, decades, resigning. So this is the moment where uh, the victory of the rev uh, revolution was announced, the nonviolent revolution. So I'm going to let this run as, as we transition. It erupts in a minute. There, the communists have resigned. <laughs> Okay, uh, I thought it would be useful just to sort of summarize the types of video that were in this project, Havel at Columbia, um, just to kind of sit back and marvel at how educational technology groups like the Center for New Media and Teaching and Learning is, um, in addition to a pilferer of riches that we find around us in libraries and archives, um, a magnet for donated content and also production center. Um, and so we have a real mixture of uh, video um, in this project. We have the interviews that we um, ran out and did at uh, a considerable, um, a lot of time spent on that. Um, a lot of fancy friends, as John mentioned, to, uh, to interview, including George Soros here. Uh, we have the documentary footage that was donated to us and uh, donated to us on terms where we could make it openly available for educational use. Uh, we had uh, material from a database in the library, the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Um, and this was not openly available for redistribution. I have a little crown there because we actually had to build in a couple of levels in the architecture of the site. 
Um, some of the video material, the majority of it, was gathered under the open terms that we were preferring because we were making it ourselves and uh, we were also uh, negotiating that. But uh, we didn't limit ourselves to openly available video material. We mixed in for Columbia students and for, um, for faculty uh, um, resources from the library as well. Uh, we had those uh, very arresting outtakes of uh, news footage from CNN, again, given to us openly for uh, whatever educational use we wanted to make of it, um, and, 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 and quite involving uh, when there's no, nobody around to sort of interpret, and you see sort of the raw um, moments of history. And we had those campus events that we were capturing. And we had a range of student performances all uh, producing Havel plays, lots of readings and plays. So there was a lot of video going into this project. And I would love to tell you a story about this video, a story I think that we would all be fairly um, sympathetic with. What, I, what I'd love to tell you is that all of these videos that we were able to gather and produce and capture and clear as much as possible for open educational use were in the process of production routinely tagged with metadata um, and ingested into a repository um, that we had here at Columbia University uh, in our fine research libraries uh, where they could be uh, in turn discovered and circulated uh, and reused and recontextualized not only by us as we made future projects I have a suspicion that we'll be building future educational projects that will uh, in interrogate some of these uh, these materials um, human rights or um, the history of the Cold War not only by us, but um, discovered uh, by researchers and students who were searching the library OPAC or perhaps WorldCat um, for uh, materials about the end of the Cold War, or by students interested in uh, figuring out what the theater of the absurd is and uh, stumbling on perhaps a reading of the Garden Party with Dustin Hoffman bringing it to life. We have that on, on the website. Um, so I would love to tell that story. Um, how we uh, were able to um, feed this video into a repository that would be in turn uh, harvested by other repositories of teaching and learning um, uh, objects and incorporated into vast public uh, resources and forums like Google Video uh, and sent out into the world in many ways. And, but that cyber infrastructure is under construction now um, I just wanted to use this hideous under construction sign that we all know and love. Um, here at the center, uh, we are building uh, a two-way channels between digital archives and educational environments. We're calling this our Digital Bridges Initiative. We're, we're thinking about how to make that story that I just told you come true. Um, in the meantime, though, for this uh, Havel at Columbia uh, project, the video that, you, that I enumerated uh, remains in this website. And I just wanted to talk about two ways in which we were able to model reuse and recontextualization just using this website. Um, the first way is through syndication. Uh, we had RSS feeds, so when new video material, particularly since this was an events-driven site, when new material came onto the site, we were able to uh, feed it into subscriptions that would then uh, be available through iTunes and other um, uh, 
video and audio content subscription channels. But maybe the more interesting uh, way that we were uh, able to model reuse and recontextualization of video were through what we call Havel notebooks. And these were personalized spaces uh, in the Havel at Columbia website in which uh, <coughs> videos uh, could be collected. Uh, so here I'm logged in to the Havel at Columbia website and you see next to the chapter that I'm watching, Impressions of Havel, there's a little add to notebook icon. Um, I'm able to just click that and that one chapter, not the whole interview, but that one chapter that I'm interested in comes into my notebook. Here's my notebook and um, you see that clip came in there, Impressions of Havel, it's just that one chapter. Uh, there's a WYSIWYG that allows me to write what I want to about this one particular piece of video that I've taken the trouble to gather. And I can go on through the site. Um, here's that uh, clip that was playing as I stood up. Um, and I can add that to my notebook as well. And I can go through the site and I can uh, mix chapters of video as well as um, images, glossary terms. And I have a notebook that I can fill out. And what's particularly interesting about this notebook is I can play the chapters that I have collected right in my notebook. So I can do my playlist. Uh, right there, and I can share it, I can make it public um, to the rest of the world. We had model notebooks on the Havel at Columbia website, which uh, faculty, and here the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs, uh, selected what they considered to be the most important video on the site, uh, gave a little introduction and a little selection. Uh, here, Lisa Anderson. Uh, lists out her selected videos. Another, uh, the head of the Columbia University Arts Initiative, um, also in a very sort of personal way, trying to engage students to interact with what they find on the website by himself putting up a top 10 list of the top 10 pieces of video that move him the most. Here he's uh, including a video of students um, in Prague ringing their keys in 1989, ringing out the communists. Um, this is a student notebook, an actual uh, graduate student, using this notebook to track and comment on the many events that were happening surrounding the Havel visit. Uh, so here he's uh, including um, a segment in which uh, Havel talks about Cuba and, uh, um, and what human rights in Cuba should uh, be. And finally, this is my last uh, slide here. This is another student notebook. This is a fledgling director. And she's talking about the theater of the absurd. And she's thinking about President Havel's uh, political background. And she's trying to put it together. And I think that we can see sort of a, a, a nascent grammar, almost, of video here. Because what she's doing in a sort of an informal and personal way, she's talking about um, the events of the Prague Spring and the heartbreak there. And this is a clip that is actual archival footage of the 1968 Prague Spring. And she's thinking about the theater of the absurd and how in the theater of the absurd there is a sort of an evacuation of belief in the, in the possibilities of language. However, <laughs> in capital letters, and then she goes right into selected clips, the most dramatic moments 
of the Velvet Revolution, leading her to think, how can a man steeped in the dark history of 1968 and cultivating artistically uh, a sensibility through the theater of the absurd, how could he be the one to rise up and lead a nation into a much more hopeful chapter? Um, and I would just sort of point out the way that she's using video clips here as almost, almost words, almost a, a piece of language here, um, and dunking us right in to what she's clearly finding very moving, and we can watch it in her notebook and see if we agree. Thank you very much. It seems especially appropriate to introduce the Yale Open Educational Resources Video Lecture Project to you all at a conference entitled Video Education and Open Content Best Practices. When I think about the open educational resources spearheaded by the Hewlett Foundation, I can't help but think that an appropriate credo might well be the motto of the King's Musketeers and Alexander Dumas, the Three Musketeers, one for all and all for one. There have been so many collective innovations made by so many of you here and by the, the institutions that you're a part of across the open educational resource landscape. And places like Yale owe you a great debt of gratitude because what you've done has obviously been foundational for the work that we are now embarked on in our pilot project this year. I, one has to ask oneself, since so many of you are also already uh, doing this kind of thing, what kind of contribution can Yale make? I don't have time to go into all the possibilities here, but I do want to highlight a few. One of those is video, which is appropriate to begin with, given, again, the title of this particular conference, because we have decided to uh, make available the core content of, our, of a certain number of arts and sciences courses at Yale through video. Faculty recruitment to encourage faculty to be willing to share their own intellectual property with the world, not a, not a, not a small challenge. The IP issues that so many of you have already addressed today, and no particular reason for me to go into them in detail here, but especially for courses in the humanities and in the, and, and, and in the arts, this is an enormous challenge for us. And we have a variety of strategies that we're thinking about, in, including using our own collections or materials owned by faculty to make this easier as we move forward. Uh, we are also tackling a full arts and sciences curriculum, again, including humanities and arts courses. And we think we can be especially innovative uh, with regard to how we are dealing with those challenges in humanities and arts courses and look forward to sharing how we do that with all of you in the future. But I just, rounding the circle, uh, to begin where I already began on this, uh, to, to come back again to where I began on this particular slide, is at the end of the day, the question is, and so many of you have already addressed it this morning, what can we all do as one, and how do our projects uh, work with each other's long term? With regard to Yale, again, as so many of you, we are looking at the whole question of the confluence of content and medium. 
the primacy of teaching in the Yale classroom and beyond the university gateways aligns extremely well with the aims of the Hewlett-sponsored open educational resources. Reaching beyond the university to make Yale teaching assets more accessible also dovetails extremely well with Yale globalization overall. And we believe, we believe, we believe when we began this project, we continue to believe, and I hope we will continue to believe thereafter, that video is the optimum vehicle uh, for delivering this content globally. With regard to introducing today the Yale Open Educational Resources video lecture project, again, we are in our pilot year. We began this project on around July 1st. Uh, we are producing uh, seven courses this year, three in the fall, three in the spring, uh, across the curriculum of the university, uh, of Yale College at least. Uh, and uh, our goal over the next several years is to open the Yale classroom worldwide and free over the internet through a curriculum of 36 Yale College courses produced by Yale's Center for Media Instruction and Innovation and surrounded with the kind of rich array of open courseware elements that MIT and others have already developed. And I show you a view, obviously, into one of those classrooms that we intend to open up here. Given the topic of this particular conference, one we, we I, I, it's important for me to ask here, as we have been asking ourselves, in the course of this past year, why video? Why have we chosen uh, to use video to the extent that we are in this project? And I would give, there are many more, but I would give three primary reasons. First of all, the person. Uh, we believe that video allows us to go beyond the syllabus by featuring the real professor and his or her unique pedagogical approach and how educational materials can be variously presented and interpreted, because obviously each faculty member is unique in terms of his or her personality, in terms of how he or she confronts the material, and how he or she presents the material to the classroom and, and beyond the classroom. Secondly, the place. We think that video allows us to open the live college classroom and share worldwide the true wonderment of teaching and learning. Third, the learning process itself facilitate widespread auditing of full courses online, accessible through a variety of options, video, audio, and text transcriptions, all of which we are providing for all of these courses, and by so doing to underscore that learning is not only about accessing instantaneous information, which I think an awful lot of students think it's what it's about these days to a certain extent because that information is so, e so easily accessible and so instantaneous. But to remind them that there's more to education than that, to teaching and learning than that, it is also about a more gradual intellectual evolution, which we think becomes very clear as one makes oneself one's way uh, through these courses, through these lectures. And lastly, the creative remix that so many of you have commented about today, that video can also help us emphasize that one can go beyond auditing and actively interact with the content of a full course, picking and choosing what to view and what to use and remix in another 
context. With regard to best practices, I want to focus here just on content, although if you have any questions about the production side, my colleague Paul Lawrence, who heads a Yale CMI2, is here. Uh, but it seems to me when one thinks about the content, uh, best practices content, the element of choice looms large. Uh, because as any, when any of us embark on projects like this, we have to think about a wide variety of things and we have to make a selection among them. One of these, of course, I'll just isolate a few here. One of these is the building of a curriculum. How does one go about building a stable of, of materials, of course, materials to share worldwide? What subjects do you choose to emphasize? Which faculty do you turn to uh, to present these for you? Video quality, the whole question of video quality, how important is the quality of the video itself? It's more expensive to produce higher quality video. How important is it uh, to, to have the very highest quality video when you are uh, filming in a classroom and then sharing that again more globally? The whole question of faculty effectiveness. Faculty are not professional actors. They're not broadcast journalists. Uh, how effective can our faculty be in presenting material that they have a passion for, not only to their students, but also to a worldwide audience? And, uh, and are there strategies for making those videos more effective, those classroom videos more effective, both in content and presentation? Another issue that I think is of particular interest is the whole student side of the teaching and learning equation. At least at Yale, our counsel's office had encouraged us in the first year of this pilot uh, not to film the students. Uh, because, of course, especially in very large courses, 100, 200 students, you have to get permission from every student if you're going to feature them. It's also more expensive because we microphone the faculty member, but we can't microphone all of the students in terms of capture all of that material. And I think as I look at the videos that we've produced, um, you know, there's a very, it's a real focus on the faculty member who's doing the presenting. And we'll show you a couple of clips today. And when you look at these, in some respects, they're wonderful because they're so immediate. When you're sitting in, you know, in front of your screen and you see that faculty member up close and personal, you get a real sense of that, of that personality, of that mind. Uh, and of the material that they're presenting without the intervention of the students. At the same time, as we all know, again, teaching and learning, faculty and students go together. And there's that fruitful exchange that takes place in the classroom, even in some lecture courses, not in all lecture courses. And we haven't tried to capture that this year. Uh, but as we move forward with this project, it's just an issue that's on my mind and one that I'd like to continue to think about. Uh, the teaching, this teaching and learning equation between faculty member and students. The IP challenge, as I mentioned before, is, is significant for all courses, obviously, that one captures, but especially for the humanities and the arts. I had a sense of that as we went into this. It's become clear that that is absolutely the case as we try to produce these materials. Uh, but we have tried not to be daunted by that. We feel it's very important to have as many humanities and arts courses as we do uh, sciences and social sciences. And so we are forging ahead with that. But the challenges are, again, considerable. For that reason, I chose to focus today, although we are producing courses in physics and astrophysics, black holes, and political philosophy, and psychology, and so on, 
Uh, it seemed to me, and Peter and I spoke about this together, that it might be particularly valuable to feature a couple of the humanities courses that we are taping this semester. So we've chosen two to show you, two case studies in the humanities. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of clips, one from each. Uh, the first is the uh, introduction to the Old Testament taught at Yale by Professor Christine Hayes. Uh, and her course, you know, you would think that the Bible, written as long ago as it was, would be the sort of thing that one would not need permission to publish. But of course, as we all know, uh, there are lots of different translations of the Bible. And you also know, or at least we, this is true at Yale, that faculty, and, and I think this is, as a faculty member myself at Yale, you know, I think it's extremely important that we let our faculty lead the pedagogical, I mean, it's their decision pedagogically what translation they want to use. I'm not going to dictate uh, to faculty members at Yale that you must use this translation because this one is going to be easier for us to permission. I want them to be able to use exactly what they think is pedagogically correct. So in the case of Chris Hayes, she happened to have chosen a translation of the Bible that's one of the more difficult ones to permission. So we have you know, a significant permissioning challenge with this course. We are, you know, we are working hard at it. We want to do it in the Creative Commons way. Uh, and we also want to do it without having to pay anything significant of anything at all for the, for the uh, materials. And it, it's actually the conversations have been ongoing, and they're going well. Uh, but this is a case of a humanities course, again, where there's quite a lot of quoting. And I've chosen, in particular, a, a, a clip where she talks about Jonah and the whale. She talks about Nineveh. Uh, but she also has a fairly significant uh, quotation on sackcloth. And I just want uh, to uh, contrast that with Shelley Kagan's course. Professor Shelley Kagan, who's in the philosophy department at Yale and has ex two extraordinary courses. One is called Life and one is called Death. And uh, we are capturing his course on death and the issues that arise, as I mentioned here, when we confront our own mortality. He focuses in the clip that I'm going to show you on the Cartesian argument that the mind is a separate entity from the body. And he talks about Descartes. Uh, but Shelley Kagan, unlike Chris Hayes, uh, doesn't, he, he, he engages with this material, but he doesn't quote extensively from it, which has, of course, been wonderful from our point of view, uh, because he's, it's, it's much less of a challenge uh, for us to film and to reveal uh, this extraordinary course. So let me show you just, uh, let me see if I can click from here. I think I can to these two clips and share with you really the first viewing beyond a few of us at the university of the clips from the In any event, in response to Jonah's prayer, God orders the fish to spew Jonah out onto dry land. In chapter 3, Jonah gets his second chance. God calls him again, and in contrast to his first response, this time Jonah sets out for Nineveh at once, and he proclaims God's message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And then comes the, the shocking element in the story. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and great and small alike put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he had the word cried through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast a flock or herd shall taste anything. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. They shall be covered with sackcloth, man and beast, and shall cry mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows but that God may turn and relent. He may turn back from his wrath so that we do not perish. God saw what they did, how they were turning back from their evil ways, and God renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon them and did not carry it out. So idolatrous Nineveh believes God and humbles itself before God, hoping to arouse his mercy. And in another humorous touch, we read that even the animals are wearing sackcloth, right? They're fasting and, and crying out to God. So from the greatest to the very least, the inhabitants of Nineveh turn back from their evil ways, and God's mercy is, in fact, aroused. That's one. And then I'd like to turn to Shelley Kagan, and you'll, you'll see also from these what we all know, which is how different faculty can be in, in terms of, again, their personalities, their approach to their, their material, and the way that they uh, choose to present. Try to imagine my mind, says Descartes, without my body. Easy. From which it follows that my mind and my body must not be one thing. They must, in fact, be two things. That's why it's possible to imagine the one without the other. So this Cartesian argument seems to show us that the mind is something separate from, distinct from, not reducible to, not just a way of talking about my body. So it's got to be something extra above and beyond my body. It's a soul. That's what Descartes argued. And as I say, to this day, philosophers disagree about whether this argument works or not. I don't think it does work. And in a second, I'll give you a counterexample. And then, having given the counterexample, I mean, that is to say, what I'm going to give is an example of an argument just like it, or at least an argument that seems to be just like it, where we can pretty easily see that that argument doesn't work, and so something must go wrong with Descartes' argument as well. Thank you. Just to keep things moving, um, my name is Scott Schunk. I'm from MIT, and um, I'm the program director of a project called Visualizing Cultures. Um, and while we make the transition, um, I was struck this morning as I was getting on the shuttle. Um, it was about a decade ago. I was in Las Vegas um, at a conference called uh, Digital Hollywood. And um, I, was, uh, I just produced a project, an educational uh, television series, an online project called uh, Cam Kid. And, um, and it was, it was it, the, the, the purpose of that, that, the development of this project, um, the, the people that had funded the, uh, this piece of education, was that, you know, to not have the only thing available on this, this new resource, the internet, that was exploding with content, um, video and still imagery and text, um, was, was videos of people swinging cats around by their tail. Um, and that is, uh, that is in, as, 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 as Peter Kaufman said this morning, um, one of the things that I am heartened nearly a decade later to see that uh, you know here at, at Columbia, um, that with 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 all of you people, we are we are here and charged with just that, um, creating creating educational media content that has value and relevance, um, and this 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 incredible medium of the web. Um, a little bit about visualizing cultures and what it is. Visualizing cultures is part of MIT's Open Courseware initiative, um, and that's that's more or less our, our distribution um, channel. We are a course at MIT, um, but largely what we 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 like to consider ourselves is this is a functional platform um, for for media and content. 
that examines the historical record through the images that were created at the time. Visualizing cultures does a, does a number of things and functions on a number of levels, um, technologically, um, in terms of content, delivery, um, pedagogically, um, and, and in terms of its models. Um, the project was the, uh, was the, the, the genesis of the project came several years ago with uh, Professor John Dower, who's a fairly noted, well-known historian at MIT, um, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, um, you know, um, had wanted to, wanted to use what he had always done to research his content um, and develop his, develop his works um, was, was in images. He based everything he did on imagery, everything he wrote was based on, 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 on scanning the, his, the visual historical record. And what the, the, the problem in, in, his, in both the academy and, uh, and, and, and publishing up to that point had been, um, there is no way it is cost prohibitive, too cost prohibitive to, to produce and publish works with color um, images in them. So John was relegated to writing 600 word texts um, with, uh, with, with, with a dozen or so black and white images stuck somewhere in the middle of that tome. Um, and suddenly, this is a man who, to today, still does not use email. Um, this is true. I get all John's email, um, <laughs> which is a horrible thing. Um, to this day, does not use email, but saw the value and of, of using, using the internet as, as finally the distribution channel that would allow him to, to wrap text around imagery in a way that would add entirely new value and relevance to that image, to those images, and to his text. Um, and, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but that was really a big deal um, in, in terms of John's thinking and his capacity to be able to do that. And I think for people to be able to absorb scholarly content and historical and cultural materials. Um, so what we, we, we call what, what we do at Visualizing Culture is something we, we've, we've, we call um, digital image scholarship. Um, and, and essentially, we look, at, we look at Visualizing Cultures as a platform, a bridge, um, between what content, the, the amazing rich depth of content that museums and other cultural institutions hold um, in their repositories, um, and scholars and, and other experts and the knowledge that they bring to contextualize that content and those different media. Um, and so in that way, we, we hope to be, we hope it is our goal and our mission to, to by, by bridging those two things, we add, we add context to that material and we, we, add, we, we, we allow access to the materials as well um, for everyone for everyone to be able to see and, and uh, interact with the great, the great and rich um, cultural materials um, that, that have been created throughout history. Media is not new. Um, so let me take you through a little bit of what the, content, what the content looks like and what the platform is. We have units. And because John is a, is a historian who specializes in Japanese history, most of the content that we have thus far is focused on, on Japan and, and, and effectively modern Japan, Edo period to the, to the present, um, 18, 1850s um, to now. And, um, what, but what we are doing is expanding that content to include other, other cultures, other countries, other, other different um, resources. Um, so what it, what it looks like is a unit um, starting with, with a, a, something we call Black Ships and Samurai, which is about uh, uh, the American Commodore Perry going to Japan and opening uh, what had been a then secluded country. Um, 
we, uh, we have something called the core exhibit, and that's John's text. So when I, when I met with John for the first time, um, John had about 40 pages of, of straight text and a box of slides. And, um, and he said, I want to do this thing. Um, and that was where we began. And so we, we began to, to embed the images um, into, 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 his, into his text. Um, and there he began to you know, begin to take details out of these images. And I'm just going to move through this very quickly. Um, and I'll, I'll tie this into where, where, where we bring video into all of this. But the, the ability to break things down, to go into details, what have you, um, was, was, was clearly one of, one of John's, one of the, the thrilling missions of, of John, to be able to, to draw, you, draw the user in, to be able to wrap his text, as I've said, right around the imagery. Wow, look at another unit. This is another unit called Yokohama Boomtown. This is after, after Perry had come. The, the country opened, uh, Japan has now opened up to foreign commerce and, and intercourse and trade. Um, and, and one of the things I, that we, we had, as the, the producers on the project said to John, is, you know, this is, people are going to get lost in this text. It's too much. It's, it's too scholarly. You know, we need to allow them another way into the content that can then push them back into something that, that's more textual and has the depth that you want. Um, so we, 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 we took some of the, th the themes that he had developed and, and built something called uh, the visual narratives. Um, and that just took, again, it took themes, specific themes in his text and broke them down, took the images, lined them up in a very, you know, graphic novel or manga-esque way and add, added small bits of text around them um, and allowed us to go in even de in more detail onto the images. And so this is just an example um, of what this looks like. We have, we have about 15 of these units that are available now. About another 15 are in the, in the pipeline. Um, from there, what we didn't want to do was just limit it to John. When John develops or the other scholars we work with develop content, they, um, they're, they're working with, with hundreds and thousands of images um, often. And so we, we wanted to then allow the users, the audience for this, um, to go in and look at a broad database of images, not just the images that the scholars have picked out and said, these are the images that are valuable to look at the broad contextualization of what, what had been created at the time. So if we have 100 or 200 images in the core exhibit or the visual narratives, um, in the database we will have up to uh, 4,000 images associated with each of the, um, each of the units, um, but, but done in context. And uh, why, that's, why that's important is one of the things that we had found in working with uh, museums like the Smithsonian and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is they have these amazing databases and they've, 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 you know, they've digitized things, they're aggressively putting them online, but they're an absolute morass. Um, and, 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 to, and to their credit, they're getting this, the images up there and, and putting the content online, making them available to anyone, but it's very difficult to navigate through these, through 400,000 images if you don't have some level of, 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 of contextualization, some level to, to granular way to bring that down into a digestible number of images and to put that number into a context, into a context that has some more further relevance. So what we'd done, um, and, and museums have changed dramatically. Ten years ago, museums would not have allowed sort of, they would not have allowed the walled garden to, to open up. And one of the things that we've done in working with, with, with again, with the Smithsonian and the MFA is to say, you, leave, you can keep the images on your database. Allow us, and so what we've done at MIT is to build this, this, this technology, and we call it the shadow asset. Um, we go in and we build, a, we build a corral around a certain number of images. Um, in one of the MFA units, that's, um, that's 400 images uh, having to do with the Russo-Japanese War. 
um, 400 woodblock prints from their Sharf collection that, that might live on the MFA's collection of 400,000 at, at image number 25 and another one at image 399,000. So there's no, they're, not, they're not housed together. And again, this is not what the museums are charged with doing. Um, it would be great if they could do it better, but there, we, we credit the museums with just getting this content there. It's the, it's, you know, it's the job of other folks like, like the John Dowers um, to add some level of context and then for technologists and producers to then to put, to put that context in there, um, as well as have it be open and free and available to everyone any way they want to use it in that, in that wild corral. So we, what we've done is pulled that content in, again, in, in, say in, a, in the context of 400 images associated with this, this, this particular unit. Um, and we do that, and we can also add our own metadata. We've added, we, we have, the, so the, the content can all live on the MFA's database, but we can add our own metadata to it to create an exposed keyword database. So, you know, the MFA can't necessarily create a whole set of metadata or keyword tagging schema for their content. But we can, and we can do it in context of the content that we're presenting to, to the user. And that user is, again, to get specific as a general audience, is a secondary, um, a secondary user, and again, to um, more scholarly, scholarly and academic users as well. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a huge piece of what we do. And by allowing that, data, that database to be open and to be contextualized in a way where there's a, there's a digestible amount of content um, to, to, the, to, to general users um, and that, that level with that added level of relevance, um, we find that users are very much empowered and then go and create their own mashups, create their own motion graphic animations, create their own PowerPoints, their slideshows, whatever they may be, using that content, using the metadata, but then using the scholarly materials or the other materials and resources that we've provided as some level of reference. And it's, it's fairly contained um, and, 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 and purposeful. So in terms of video, video is a key element um, in what we do. Um, and we, we very much we want to be able to, we, we, know, we know the power of video allows a general audience or anyone to get into the, into the content right away. There's no audio on this, is there? Um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to play something as I, as I close. Um, we appreciate the power of video, as I've said, um, and what we've done with a number with with all of this, we create a scholarly text, create the visual narrative, the graphic novel approach to allow users another another way into the content, allow a large database of, of materials for people to play with, and then also we provide some linear content or some interactive media um, that that again pulls the content together and um, and begins to you know impart some level of, of additional value or knowledge to it and to users who are who are taking in data in different in different manners. Um, what I'm showing you right now is something I did in a collaboration with um with uh, Roundabout Theater and Stephen Sondheim at Studio 54 a few years ago. Um, and just in the way that the wonderful way that collaboration forms um, they had seen this project, the folks at Roundabout and Sondheim and, and he said, you know, instead of this, you know, the, 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 the thousand words and playbill that we're going to have, is he was, he was, they were, they were reviving um, Pacific Overtures, which is about the encounter between Perry and the Japanese. You know, could you put together a short animation that will play in, a, in, a, in the lobby um, for people to be able to, to get an idea of what was happening using the, the historical images created by the Japanese and by the Westerners um, and to juxtapose that and to try to, to, try to tell the story. Um, and we, we, by working with Apple and other other people, um, we 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 built this animation, which I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let run. 
Um, but again, the, you know, the, the mandate, the mandate for the project is to, for visualizing cultures, is to create scholarly content around visual imagery, um, and then to allow users to be able to find their, what, by whatever way they feel most comfortable, pathways into that content, into that rich depth of, of material. Um, and then to create and, and to purpose their own content. Um, and again, we've, we've provided a number of tools, we provide a number of different platforms, um, but largely, you know, we, we want the content to just be the content in whatever means people want it to be. And, um, you know, and, and, and we find that if, if, we don't, if we don't pull out this content and allow, and allow people to, you know, allow scholars to a, add their, their, their pieces, their, their information and their data to the content, and then have that content be made more relevant to, to users of, of all different levels, the users then add another level of relevance to that content. And, and if that doesn't happen, these materials, these, you know, this, this wealth of visual materials will uh, effectively rot in archives, physical and digital. Um, so so that's, that's, that's part of the mission, is just to continue to get this material out there and to put it in a scholarly context. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Michael Cubitt. I'm the uh, director of Media Vision at uh, Case Western Reserve University in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and present some of the work that we're doing at Case uh, in the area of video production and, and web delivery of both lecture content as well as some other pretty exciting projects that we've been involved in. So just a little bit about Media Vision. We, we are a, a non-academic service department, so we're not really affiliated. Case does not have a communications department or a media production department per se. So we serve the university with essentially 13 full-time staff. Uh, five years ago, we were essentially an AV department. Uh, Lev Gonick, our, our vice president that arrived at that time, wanted to transition us sort of into the, into the 21st century and begin to use rich media uh, and some of the technologies that are available uh, today. So we have a suite of services from your traditional audiovisual through video production. Um, so just within the, the last five years, we've actually grown or have had to grow very significantly uh, in a short amount of time from essentially four uh, full-time staff to, to 13. Uh, so just in this past year, we produced uh, 250 projects, uh, mainly an IT-centric uh, production department. Most of what we deliver is, is via the web. We deliver in all the, all the major formats. Um, we encode right now about 100 hours of video per week. Uh, so with only 13 full-time staff, essentially four people dedicated to video production, we had to architect systems that allowed us to be able to encode a lot of content uh, pretty much without any manual intervention. Uh, just some of the metrics that uh, I brought with me from, from earlier uh, this week. Uh, we've measured basically since July 1st of, uh, of 06, uh, we've delivered 250,000 streams uh, to our university community. So what's enabled that is, is essentially our campus network. Uh, and I won't spend a lot of time going through this because I know we're, we need to catch up a little bit. Uh, but we are a gigabit ethernet uh, to 22,000 ports on campus, free wireless network, and, and some pretty robust connectivity to uh, both the public internet, internet to, and the National Lambda Rail. 
um, about our students, and, and this is significant because everything that we do uh, is not necessarily because we can do it, because, but we need to, and it's in, in relation to the feedback that we get from our students. We know from this last incoming freshman class, 93% of them are using laptops uh, some type of, or some type of handheld device. 96% uh, of them are, have brought cell phones. And the expectations of students are very high when it comes to technology and both IT services. Uh, the significance of that is that we find the students actually do all the leveraging that we need with our faculty to actually begin to get them to adopt uh, technology. So we're there to kind of provide those services when the faculty come to us. So a couple of projects that we've been involved in, and uh, don't worry about the audio in there, so just let these play. Um, in relation to uh, University Hospitals of Cleveland, uh, we produced um, a telesurgery between uh, an OR in the Cancer Center and several donors uh, that were there to look at, at funding possibilities for, uh, for the campus. So we sort of the front end of this was traditional production, two cameras, laparoscope, uh, totally interactive between the donors in the conference room and the surgeon that was uh, performing the surgery live. Uh, what's it, was it particularly exciting about this is the million dollar check that was written at the end of this uh, event uh, by somebody who was in the audience that had the opportunity to actually talk to the surgeon uh, while they were performing that, uh, uh, that operation. So we were, we were pretty excited about the opportunity to, to participate in that. Uh, this next example is uh, Case's Wireless Mesh Project, in which we extended uh, the campus uh, wireless network to a five-mile radius around the campus. Uh, what we did is we uh, brought in high school students uh, from the Cleveland Public Schools uh, to serve as hosts at various locations around the community, uh, local high school, local library, community center, and someone's home, basically to demonstrate what are some of the benefits of a public accessible wireless network and how they could benefit healthcare and education. And we essentially brought media and, and friends of the university in and performed essentially what was a video conference, uh, but it was some elements of video production that we used at the front end of that as well. The, uh, the next uh, project that we completed in, in mid-April uh, was a combination of RED, uh, which is a, a, an orchestra in Cleveland whose mission is to reach uh, sort of a new generation of, of concert goers with the orchestra. And we actually broadcast, or essentially webcast, uh, the premiere of one of their pieces into Second Life. Um, so it was a one megabit quick time stream into three, uh, three venues. We shot this with 12 cameras. Uh, we got a lot of volunteer uh, work from our colleagues around, uh, around Cleveland. Um, so we had about 1,200 uh, folks actually in the theater to, uh, to watch the concert, and we probably had 1,500 avatars uh, that actually um, attended the concert virtually uh, to watch that in Second Life. So those are just some of the, some of the fun things that we get to do in our, in our spare time. <laughs> some of the initiatives that we've rolled out, um, and this is something that we introduced to the campus uh, in uh, March of this year, uh, is what we call Case TV. So it is a, an archive of university assets, uh, both things that we have shot, things that were in our archives previously, uh, things that are contributed by various departments, uh, what we found is with uh, all the guest speakers and lecturers that are, that are occurring on campus, everyone in the university community cannot certainly take the time to, to make it to each one of those. So it was really in response to a very simple demand. How can we be able to see Stephen Hawking that gave his lecture at Severance Hall? Uh, how can we watch university commencement ceremonies from Sunday? 
Uh, so we, we've responded to that and put together uh, case.tv. Uh, we've also found we've gotten very positive response from our alumni who, who certainly for practical reasons can attend most of these lectures that take place on campus. Uh, now they feel much more connected to the campus community than, than what they had previously. Uh, so we're excited to be able to roll this out. Uh, we're going to provide an, actually an automated upload and encoding feature uh, at the end of the summer. Uh, and then the next step of this will be actually a live 24-by-7 uh, uh, webcast uh, channel. <clears throat> so to relate back to, uh, to Courseware, I know several have, have talked about their efforts in, in Courseware. Um, all very impressive. Um, wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, Media Vision Courseware, which is something we developed in, in the fall of 2003. Um, our motivation for doing this was slightly different. It was more uh, related to uh, attrition and freshman success. So what we found is that a number of our students, and, and I'm sure many of your institutions have similar challenges, are very bright, very gifted, comes from high schools with relatively small class sizes. They find themselves in a freshman lecture with 200 under students, don't have the personal attention uh, that, they, that they're used to in high school, and sort of need a little bit of help to sort of bridge that gap between high school and university setting. So um, for that reason, as well as sort of return on investment, so it's a lot easier to justify the expenses of into going into course uh, capture in a lecture hall with 250 than it is to be in a classroom with 30. Uh, so that was sort of our other rationale for, for targeting a large lecture as well. The site features um, an interactive calendar, um, syllabi that can be uploaded, video searchable, so it's all indexed and, and cataloged. And students have the ability to, to log in. Each course has its own dedicated website. Um, each lecture is posted individually. Each lecture is broken into concepts, typically four or five concepts that are driven by uh, the faculty and a TA. Those are all individually tagged, uh, and they can be searched throughout the, uh, throughout the semester by our students. Uh, there's also a visual storyboard uh, this, that the students can use to sort of cue in at what points in the lecture that they want to be able to review that. <clears throat> so the importance of this, we've, we've measured, we've, we've uh, performed surveys each semester, as well as focus groups with our students and focus groups with our faculty to sort of continue to develop courseware. What are some features that we need to add? What are some things that we need to do better? Uh, and from the latest survey that just came back, um, so we surveyed the 1,500 students that actually were in a class that we used courseware, we got about 500 responses back, which we were pretty excited about. Uh, we found that essentially 95% of the students are actually using this. 85% um, of students where English is a second language use it extensively. And a lot of our student athletes who travel um, use it as well. And the faculty appreciate of that because then they don't have someone for the Monday morning lecture because uh, they had to miss because the athlete was traveling over the weekend. 75% of the uh, students watch videos or confirm that they've watched videos in order to help them clarify the course content, essentially give them more confidence that they could actually do better in the class, which for those of you know the research on, on uh, education, uh, students that are more confident in their ability to, to know the material uh, perform better. Um, one of the things that we found very interesting, 88% of our students uh, actually don't use the MP3s that we deliver with the lectures. And we've actually been delivering those since uh, since we started the initiative in, in 2003. 
uh, when we asked them, they essentially said most of the courses that are being produced are have heavy visual content. So having a, an MP3 of the lecture really doesn't help them. So, but we, we, since it's automated and part of the process, we still continue to deliver that. But it was sort of an interesting development um, that, uh, that we found from that. What we've done in response um, is rather than trying to offer the whole lecture, we have a freshman uh, calculus class uh, that we essentially have the faculty member come in and produce small three-minute learning objects. Uh, and those can essentially, you can subscribe to a podcast or an RSS feed as a student and just watch little three-minute uh, three video snippets. <clears throat> the one uh, particular um, uh, statistic that we're, we're particularly excited about is, is that 98% of the students who were surveyed actually said that they would recommend this as a tool to other students. Uh, so for those of you that serve your campus communities, um, to have that type of approval rate from, from the student population is, is pretty exciting. Um, so just to wrap up some of the metrics uh, from uh, this past uh, academic year, so this is about 3,000 students or so that actually took classes when which courseware was offered. Uh, we've measured 66,000 uh, individual logins, um, 230,000 streams opened, um, and about 317,000 individual page hits. So the students are actually using the tool. They're excited about the tool. Uh, the next step in our assessment is actually to see if it's actually helping them to perform uh, better as far as their, their learning outcomes. Great. Thank you very much. project, I understand those are open use, maybe non-commercial by anyone, but the, but the Columbia one um, sounded different, and I'd just like to understand the terms of use. When you said subscription at the Columbia, you meant an RSS subscription or a paid subscription? No, no RSS subscription. Okay, so what are the terms of use of the three, just generally, quickly? <laughs> is it, how open is open? What, what are you talking about? Well, when we, uh, when we uh, conduct those interviews, we have a release form that uh, gives us rights to use it whatever way we want to do additional product. What way do you want to, though? I'm saying as the user, what rights does a user have who clicks and finds them? Stuff. Well, I'd be happy to share with you the, the license that we have. Um, I don't have it. It's streaming media now. And that's, I, I mean, I didn't write the license, but I'm not probably the one Characterize it, but it is, it is as open as it can be. We wrote it with our general counsel here at Columbia um, to use the material um, in any new way that we want to. Can anyone else add that from the video team? I think that's where we represent it well. That you're asking about what users can do. Uh, we're really in the practice of kind of police, seeing if anyone else is doing anything. Different than the original agreement, uh, people will do another thing with it, and if we do about it, they know about it, they will be fine with us. I think the agreement would allow for that as well. MIT limits our usage to non commercial. Other than that, it's. <clears throat> 
Yeah, Yale would be the same, non-commercial, but otherwise uh, the broadest Creative Commons license with the ability to download, remix, whatever. Yes, um, uh, my, my name is Hal Plotkin, and, and I wear a number of hats, but for the purposes of this question, um, the hat I'm wearing is as the president of the Board of Trustees of the Foothill De Anza Community College District in Silicon Valley. We have uh, two colleges with about 45,000 students, and I'm also a member of the Public Policy Committee of the American Association of Community College Trustees, where we like to say we educate the top 100% of the American public. And, um, and what I wanted to highlight for your attention, and I'm particularly interested in the new program at Yale and the video program at MIT, um, is to ask whether or not um, you're, you're uh, planning or are, in, or, or are already closed captioning these videos. Because, um, as you may know, one of the obstacles that we've run into in public education with open educational resources is the lack of um, compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And as a policymaker, when I've taken these open educational resources to our vice presidents of instruction, they're not allowing our faculty to put these materials, uh, including most, for example, of the MIT open courseware, on the green sheets uh, that the faculty use because none of our resource-starved public institutions can afford to be sued um, under the terms of the ADA, and we routinely are. So I wanted to bring that to your attention and also to make an appeal to anybody in this room who's considering or who's in the process of making uh, videos that they intend to be used by resource-starved public institutions to please study carefully the requirements that determine the, uh, our ability to make use of those materials. Um, otherwise, as I've said before, it's kind of like uh, taking a, a can of dog food and throwing it over the fence to a pack of hungry wolves. Uh, there's not much we can do with it. If, if, uh, at Yale, we have taken that into very serious consideration. We, the transcriptions that are being done for our lectures are, are essentially, are, are not essentially, are verbatim uh, records of what was said in the lecture because, just so that we can move to closed captioning. Uh, if that is, in fact, we plan to move to closed captioning. And, and I guess I just want to add that, that if the material is released and the idea is that the user institutions will do the closed captioning, then we won't be able to use the material. We just don't have budgets for it. Say that again? If, if the material is released in a way where, the, where it does not include the closed right. captioning, you won't be able to do it. Yeah, I understood. Understood. Um, my name is Michael Smolens from Dr. Sub. And, and we are just introducing a browser-based tool that enables online video to be captioned without a browser. And we work with, uh, uh, some, we're doing work with a lot of people. And it is also available for subtitling in other languages. And we just started doing a little bit of work with WGBH, who has a 1,700 hours of lecture. So I'd be very happy to share what we're doing with you, and it's a tool that's available that you can have your own students do it with no software and no training whatsoever to create closed captioning of online videos. Okay. Certainly. Uh, I'd like to mention something about Open um, Courseware. My name's uh, Jason Thayer, and I'm the media specialist for our MIT Open Courseware. And to talk about the subject of captioning, uh, we are in the process of using uh, an automated solution where we've got a system that we're, we're working on uh, implementing which will go ahead and uh, automate the uh, captioning of our videos, which will take care of some, but obviously not all. Um, 
and we are dedicated to trying to make it more accessible. Now, the other part of uh, the accessibility that we do is we do make it clear that um, if you need um, an accessible version, you can request one and we will make one available. Um, and that's how we handle that kind of requirement. So, because obviously there is quite a high level of um, investment and time required to get those pieces. You're, you're probably aware that the, the current law requires if an institution like ours is sued under the ADA, we have three days in order to satisfy the requirement to provide the student with an accessible version. Uh, 72 hours. Well, we, we basically say we will you know, provide the person the copy, you know, if requested. So. While we're on topic, just descriptive video is the other for visually impaired people. So captioning and descriptive video is a little more involved because you have to do extensive production. Right. Yeah, it is, it is captioning that descriptive video. I guess, not to tell but the one thing that I, that I would add is in our investigations of this, what we've learned is that if you build um, ADA compliance checklist into your video or learning materials production methodology from the start, and our community college system can provide you with such a checklist, that the costs of doing it are 10 to 15 percent uh, of the total cost of the production on average, but that if you have to reverse engineer the ADA components into already produced materials that the costs um, escalate far beyond that. It might be handy to have that checklist somewhere online in a way that we can kind of link to it. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. extra 10 to 15 percent in production budget. I am a less granted an award a couple of years ago to do uh, 50 clips with closed captioning and descriptive video in an archival finding um, site, and it's called uh, 10 o'clock news. So if you want to see an example of both descriptive video for the blind and closed captioning, it's 10 o'clock news. What is it? What is the site? You know, I don't have the exact address offhand. I'll get it to you. Actually, you're coming up into the presentation this afternoon. So one more question from uh, Lecter. Uh, here at Columbia, one of the um, requirements for captioning that we've had is mostly for some of our medical uh, applications where the terminology is sometimes hard even for English speakers to understand. Uh, we have worked with an outfit called Automatic Sync that gives us about a five-minute turnaround on a caption uh, file if you provide them the transcript in about 24 hours on a on a uh, file that we need. And it's a service. You do it all online, and it works very quickly for us. Obviously, we don't have the kind of system that you just uh, talked about, but at least it gives us some uh, fairly easy means of getting those uh, captions onto the video. And then we just put that in through the processing of, of the normal video uh, work. Yeah, we at Berkeley uh, also use AST. Paul Lawrence from Yale. I think one of the issues um, we had in captioning was ensuring that the content that we're using in the caption is correct and accurate. One of the things that we found from a lot of these self-generated captioning groups is people entering the capture um, and the people that are viewing this, the accuracy rate goes way down. And that was one thing that we wanted to ensure that the transcripts that we're providing, that we're doing the right thing, not only providing transcripts, make sure those transcripts are accurate. And that especially is important when you're doing closed captioning. 
because we see so much poor closed captioning right now. I urge all of you to watch your local evening news and see the garbage that's coming off line 21. And it's true. And if it's an inaccurate caption, our public institutions can still be sued under the terms of the <laughs> for not providing the disabled students with the equivalent materials that are available to other students. Let's pray for lunch.